Thanks, Father, so much for Willie's heart, her generous heart and her love for people and that what she brings today will be uh, your spirit flowing through her and that you'll give us the ears to hear it and to take on board uh, all that you're uh, saying to us as a congregation. I'll just thank you so much for Willie's uh, uh, openness to be able to share with us this morning and um, yeah, we, we pray uh, your peace upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Dan. Good morning. All right. Today's topic is getting grace. I'm not talking about receiving grace, although that would be good too. I'm talking about getting grace in the sense of understanding it, really getting it, so that at the end of this message you'll be able to say, I get it. So let me just start with a couple of scriptures. Uh, I always use the J.P. Phillips version, so it might sound a little bit different to what you're used to. Um, so... For God loved the world so much that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him is not judged at all. John 3.16 and then 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, The gospel message is that Christ died for our sins, as the scripture said he would, that he was buried and rose again on the third day, again, as the scriptures foretold. If by faith you have believed in Jesus Christ, you have become the recipient of the greatest gift in the whole history of mankind, namely grace. Just like you to think through a few questions with me. Think about these. How did God save you? What brought Jesus to the earth? What kept Jesus on the cross as the soldiers hammered the nails into his hands and feet? Why are you forgiven of all your sins? Why are you going to heaven when you die? What empowers you to live for God here on earth? What is the heart of the gospel? Why do good things happen to bad people? The answer to all of these questions is grace. God's amazing grace. Grace is a hot topic amongst theologians. Some preach radical grace and accuse, and others accuse the radical grace believers of allowing people to sin. A distinguishing feature of Pentecostalism is radical grace. I'm a grad radical grace believer. I believe there is nothing I can do to get right with God. All I need to be right with God is to accept by faith that Jesus Christ died for my sin. He bore on the cross the penalty for my sin. I love grace. I finally get grace. Understanding grace has changed my life. Briefly to tell you that I grew up in a cult. And by the time I was 16 years old, I was knocking on people's doors 100 hours a month as what you would call a local missionary. I would have to make sure that I deposited 15, 50 watchtowers and awakes and three or four books. And then at the end of it, it might be okay for the month. But I'd always have to go home and say, is this enough to get me into the kingdom of God? Because as a JW, you will never know if you are truly saved until you die and maybe you might get resurrected to paradise. That's a big burden. 
and, and getting grace is very hard for a person who's grown up in a cult. So it took me 65 years to finally get it. A long time. It was such an exciting time. I was in Bali and one of my friends is a tattoo artist. I said, Yogi, I need you to do something for me. So, grace in the middle of a cross. And sometimes I hang on to it and I said, I'm holding on to grace. I'm holding on to grace. Because life can get tough. When you truly get grace, when you truly understand grace, you'll never be the same again. A revelation of grace brings with it fresh enthusiasm for Jesus. The more I understood grace, the more I realised that grace is the most important topic in the whole Bible. The understanding of grace is a life changer. For me, it changed my relationship with God. The, the prophets of the Old Testament, they dreamed of this grace. Jesus revealed this grace. The Apostle Paul preached this grace. And people like Martin Luther rediscovered this grace. And we, God's people, are called to manifest this grace in our world. Let's look for a moment at the opposite of grace, namely the law. In Pakistan, there are markets with birds in various cages. And some people will go to buy the birds just to set them free. And it's believed that if you set a bird free, it's doing a good deed, which erases the bad deed that you've just done. They look for forgiveness from wrongdoing through the ritual of setting birds free. If you go to Nepal, the birthplace of Buddha, there's a famous monkey temple right up the top of Kathmandu. I've never seen it, I've read about it and seen it on pictures. And if you went there, you would see so many men and women just spinning their wheels, raising flags across the, the temples and just lighting incense, doing everything they possibly can just to appease their gods. These people are desperately trying to earn merit through human effort. A typical trait of every religious tradition is the need to perform a special deed or a sacred ceremony in order to be blessed by the gods. Muslims pray towards Mecca five times a, a day. Buddhists go on long pilgrimages. And Hindus offer rice and incense to idols. I'm in Bali very often and it never ceases to amaze me how many little baskets there are outside all the shops. And you'll find rice to the gods and they have these special, what they call holy flowers, which is like a marigold, a big orange marigold. And they put the leaves in there and sometimes, it's really funny, there's a cigarette in there or there'll be a lolly. <laughs> anything to appease the gods, but they take it seriously. And it's just sad sometimes to just see them work so hard to get God's favour. For most religions, being on God's good side requires a lot more than one or two simple rituals. There's whole lots of to-dos. For instance, Buddhists follow an eightfold path. Hindus believe in karma. The Jews keep the Torah, Muslim impose Sharia law. And the less said about that law, the better. 
Each religion asks its followers to do special deeds and good work in order to keep the gods happy, to avert divine wrath and atone for sin. And through this, religion makes spiritual rituals the key to a successful relationship with God. Spiritual rituals include things like prayer, fasting, penance, giving to the poor, serving in the community, and generally doing good. As a person does all these things, religion promises the reward of divine blessing and favour and some way ultimately a reward of eternal life. All of these actions are good, but none of them are the source of God's blessings. The blessing of God comes through grace, which comes from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All of these actions are the result of a grace-filled life, not the cause of it. Even in Christian circles, there are work-orientated messages circulating. I'll give you three that I've heard of. One is, eight secrets to activating the blessing. And the secret of the double portion blessing. And three keys to getting a hundredfold return. The common theme of these messages is that someone must do something in order to earn favour and blessing from God. The idea is a very religious one, but it has found its way into Christian preaching, teaching and believing. It's something to be aware of. But if religious effort is not the key to receiving God's blessing, why is it that so many count on religious effort? The answer is simple. Man wants to be right with God. Only a small percentage of people in the world dispute the existence of a God. Most of the world believes in some form of divinity. And where, is a, where there is a belief in the divinity, there is a sense that that power is somehow affected in their lives. Mankind wants to be on the good side of whatever divinity it believes in. So much so for mankind in general, but what about Christians specifically? Why has our faith sometimes become so religious? Maybe it's because Christians lack a personal revelation of God's grace. They just don't get it. Besides that, in the Old Testament, God chose to reveal himself through a code of laws. The law that is contained in the Hebrew scriptures is recognised as the word of God. The law is full of moral teachings, ethical codes, ritualistic requirements and instructions for almost every part of life. In all, there's 445 laws. And part of the law included assurances that if you obeyed, then you would be blessed. Without a focus on grace, it can be so easy to fall back on an old revelation of God in an attempt to be right with him. The problem with this old revelation is that it is outdated and totally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. No man can or will be justified by the works of the law. But in hindsight, the law has done something quite remarkable. Um, I'd just like to read to you uh, from just a small paragraph from a book called The Normal Christian Life. I've stuck it together with sticky tape so I could actually bring it here this morning. I just love this book. Um, he, he's really a theologian and I love theologians. He, he was um, a Christian um, missionary, a, a Chinese missionary. And he says this about the law. 
It's a bit heavy, but try and concentrate. It's, it's, I think it's great. The law was not given in the expectation that we would keep it. It was given in the full knowledge that we would break it. And when we have broken it so completely as to be convinced of our utter need, then the law has served its purpose. It has been our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that in us he may himself fulfil it. When compared to all of the other religions in the world, true Christianity stands unique. The main difference is that other religions offer a system of earning merit through works, while Christianity solely relies on divine grace. Yet true Christianity has not always been easy to find. Over the ages, the Christian religion has imposed just as many rules as any other, as any other system of belief. And we can see how this was true in the life of Martin Luther. During the Middle Ages, the, the view of the church was that grace was a treasure that was managed and dispensed by the church. It was taught that believers did not inherently receive grace. The priest taught that if you gave enough money, you did enough good works, and you prayed enough, you just might get some grace. It was like this. That's how the church saw grace, a treasure. And what they would do is open their treasure box and say, ah, oh, there's some grace. This grace goes to Megan Muller because for so many years she looked after our children in this church and helped them to grow. She loved them. She sacrificed time. So... Megan, the church would say to you, here's grace, you've earned it. I've got some more grace. This is for Pastor David Smythe, and he knows he's getting this. But the same thing, 20 years of dedicated service in loving us, he gets grace. Jenny Pope, you get some grace. You deserve it because you pray at home so much for all of us in this church and you've done that for years and years. You are deserving of some grace. And then what else have I got? Oh, yes. I've got this I pinched out of my husband's drawer. This is an order in the Medal of Australia which my husband got 10 years ago for 30 years of work to multiple sclerosis. And the church would definitely have given him some grace. But how did the rest of the people feel? How would they have felt? Did they think that they just had to work, work, work just to get the grace of God? Grace in those times was the result of religious effort and spiritual discipline. And it was into this cultural understanding of grace that Martin Luther was born. Luther was scared of God and becoming a monk was part of his quest to become pleasing and holy and a recipient of God's grace. As a young monk, Martin Luther would spend six hours every day just racking his brain thinking, what did I do wrong yesterday that I haven't confessed today? 
He once wrote, Although I lived a blameless life as a monk, I felt that I was a sinner with an uneasy conscience before God. I also could not believe that I had pleased him with my works. Far from loving that righteous God who punished sinners, I actually loathed him. I was a good monk and kept my order so strictly that if ever a monk could get to heaven by monastic discipline, I was that monk. All my companions in the monastery would confirm this. And yet my conscience would not give me certainty. But I always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. You weren't contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. Luther tried every means of grace that the church offered. Yet despite his efforts, he continually struggled with the fact that he felt short of God's standard of holiness. He suffered from an overwhelming sense of, of sinfulness. For Luther, he, what he termed spiritual depression set in for him. Extremely aware of God's holiness and yet at the same time understanding that he was completely unable to appease God's sense of justice with his own work and discipline. Luther left, was left wandering and saw God as a vindictive, angry judge. One story of how Martin tried to resolve the spiritual pressure, uh, depression illustrates how futile the, the nature is of trying to gain your own salvation. During a visit to Rome, Luther visited many of the great churches. And you know, a lot of those churches have lots and lots of steps. Well, what he would do, he would get down on his knees and spiritually kiss every step until he got to the front door. Such actions arose from his desperate attempt to try and please God. But it was during this time that Luther studied the epistle of Paul, epistles of Paul. And as he studied Romans and Galatians, he became disturbed by the church's emphasis on keeping religious rules. He read in Romans 3 verse 28, A man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And as he continued to read and study, Luther received the revelation that people are saved by faith alone and by grace alone. And because of his new understanding of grace, Luther challenged the status quo, of the religious status quo of the day, and he wrote 95 theses and nailed them to the cathedral door. And one of those things said something like, the Pope cannot remit sins. And there was another 94. So Luther's new theology was that, was that justification and salvation, that is, the place of being right with God and being saved from the penalties of sin comes through God's grace, not from one's own works. Grace is a free gift of God. It's not earned. And for Luther, this started a whole new discovery of God and he found such peace with God. And he was such a blessing to many people that followed he, after his footsteps. He, he taught them so much. And like Luther, there's so many people today, past and present, who are hungry for God's grace. People need to hear good, joyful news of salvation, not being given a powerless list of rules. It's so, so important that we get to understand how amazing God's grace is. If we 
say to a sinner in the world, okay, you are this, this and that, and you're going there, there and there, how are they ever going to come to God? Because that's giving them the law. And we as Christians can't keep the law, so how much more do we expect them to keep the law? It's only by the grace of God and by his love and sharing the true gospel that we can win these people over. Have you ever been amazed? It's the Koya tree, the largest living thing on our planet. Six metres wide, minimum, 26 storeys high. Amazing. And the sheer volume of water that throw... Sorry, I was just trying to catch Dave's eye. The, the sheer volume of water pouring over Niagara Falls is 160 tonnes per second and it makes 4 million kilowatts of electricity. How amazing is that? The Great Wall of China, 21,196 kilometres of wall over rugged terrain. Amazing. Neil Armstrong stepping onto the moon. Amazing. Roger Bannister running the first four-minute mile. Amazing. There are many amazing things in this world, but the most amazing thing of all is God's grace. All these other things pale into insignificance when compared to the amazing grace of God. There's a powerful story of the effect of the grace on the life of a man who lived in the 1700s, but you know of him. It's the story of John Newton. John Newton, an infidel and libertine, as he would call himself, was amongst other things, a slave trader. One time, Newton jammed 600 slaves into the bowels of his ship. He had them all standing upright for the two-month journey, chained together. 20% died, 120 lives lost. They were just forced to stand. And then in, 197, in 1748, Newton went on another trip with another load of slaves from Sierra Leone, just on the west coast of Africa. And when he was not far away from the coast, there was this massive storm that rose up. There was thunder, lightning, huge waves, and the ship was tossed to and fro. And Newton was afraid for his life. Newton cried out to God, save this wretched soul. The storm died down and Newton lived to sail another day, but Newton was forever changed. This conversion experience set Newton on a journey that would eventually see him become a clergyman, a preacher and an abolitionist, and he was instrumental in helping William Wilberforce abolish the slave trade in England. Newton's real-life encounter with God inspired him to write the words of the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Newton was spiritually blind, but the grace of God touched his life and made him see. 
But what's so amazing about grace? What makes anything amazing? It's the seeming impossibility of a thing that amazes. What exactly is grace? The English word comes from the Latin word gratia, which means pleasing and thankful. But the Greek word for grace used throughout the New Testament is a word called charis, C-H-R-I-S. And the picture this word provides is that of a ruler who, having conquered a rebellious people, allows them to live despite their opposition. Grace is defined as God's unmerited, undeserved, unearned favour and blessing. Because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we experience all of God's blessing, his mercy, his, his love, his forgiveness, his help, his resources. All these things have been given to us freely. Grace is God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. What does grace do for you? To make this a bit more interesting, I'd like you to help me. If I say you are, I will say you are called, and then you, can you all say as loudly and as happily by grace? Could you do that? That will make the list go much faster for me. And also there's a lot of scriptures, so I have some copies of that in my bag if you would like them at the end of the meeting to take home and read through yourself. You're most welcome to get a copy. So what does grace do for you? You are called by? Grace. You believe by? Grace. You are saved by? Grace. You are justified? Grace. You are accepted? By grace. You are, your sins are forgiven? You overcome sin. By grace. You overcome every weakness. By grace. You are sanctified. By grace. You are empowered to live for God. By grace. You learn how to live godly life. By grace. You receive miracles. By grace. You have a spiritual gift. By grace. You have hope. By grace. You have an inheritance. By grace. You have eternal life. By grace. You are an heir with Christ. You reign with Christ. Are you amazed yet? God's grace does a lot for you and me. It's rich, abundant and many-sided. But where does all this grace come from? How does all this grace become available to you? Is it because of how hard or how regularly you pray or how much you believe or how sinless you are or how much good you do? No. Grace has nothing to do with anything you do or don't do. Grace is all about what only God can do. The Son of God came into our world as Jesus Christ and grace and truth came with him. In what ways can you experience the grace of God in his Son? There's forgiveness in Jesus. The power of grace is is its ability to overcome sin. No sin in your life is bigger than God's mercy and grace. Our actions, thoughts and motives are often contrary to God's laws. Yet in God's eyes we're a new creation, perfect in Christ Jesus. How can this be? The answer is grace. We have salvation in Jesus. 
everyone has sinned and the penalty for sin is death. But Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for those sins. We have victory in Jesus. As believers, we are not fighting for victory. We are fighting from a position of victory. Jesus won the victory on the cross and everything else is a celebration. As a believer in Jesus, you can never be more victorious than you are right now. We have rest in Jesus. We can rest in what Jesus has already done. We don't have to strive. We have riches in Jesus. In the ages to come, God will reveal all the riches of his grace. And for all eternity, we will be reigning with Christ. We have blessing in Jesus. How often do we ask God for blessings that are already ours? Ephesians 1 verse 3 tells us we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. There is nothing that God is going to do for you that he hasn't already done. Sometimes we struggle and strain to get blessed without realising that we're already blessed. People who try to get blessed are like this little girl who visited the Statue of Liberty in New York. During her visit, she noticed a guard on the side and she said, I want to buy that, pointing to the Statue of Liberty. So the guard says, how much money do you have? And she said, 25 cents. I want to buy it. But the guard says, well, you need to understand three things. First, 25 cents is not enough to buy it. If you had millions and millions of dollars, you couldn't buy it. Secondly, the Statue of Liberty is not for sale. And thirdly, if you are an American citizen, the Statue of Liberty is already yours. It's the same way with God's blessing. If you're trying to get blessed, there are three things we need to understand. We don't have enough money to purchase it. It's not for sale. And if we're Christian, we're already blessed. Grace is amazing. But it's only as we understand God's grace and abandon this idea of misplaced trust in religious, religious rituals and trust in Christ alone that we will come to understand and experience just how amazing God's grace is. How then do we... Sorry, swap my papers around. I dropped them. Okay, the opponents of radical grace would argue this. They would say that Jesus calls us to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh, Romans 8. That we have to renew our minds, Romans 12. And he calls us to live holy lives in 1 Peter. And we're also called to strip off everything that hinders us and to run the race before us with patience, fixing our eyes on Jesus, Hebrews 12. The argument is that Jesus makes demands of us. The answer is yes, he does. But here's the important thing. The demands Jesus makes is the very demands he himself fulfills in us. Let me say that again. The demands Jesus makes is the very demands he himself fulfills in us. Jesus empowers us through his spirit and by his grace. 
Remember that we gave our lives to follow Jesus when we died. How can a dead person do anything by themselves? The Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus himself does the work of sanctification within me. Philippians 1 verse 6 tells us that the one who began a good work in us will go on to develop it until the day he returns. And chapter 2 verse 13 of the same book says, For it is God who is at work within you, giving you the will and the power to achieve his purpose. How then do we grow to Christian maturity? Do we just sit back and let it all happen? No. We are in relationship with the Father and the Son and he has sent the Spirit to to guide us. The Holy Spirit is our helper. The Spirit prompts us in life in all manner of things. And when he does, all we can do is give him our willingness. For instance, I can give you an an illustration. This this week, I had a, um, a decorating customer who was really driving me nuts. And I just felt in my spirit, I just wanted to get out of my shop. And then I just felt this, when she left, I just felt this prompting. It wasn't judgment of the spirit. It was just a prompting to say, hey, what sort of life has this person got at home? What's happening in their life? And I was challenged to just be kinder. And so I said, Lord, forgive me. I'm so sorry. I don't want that to happen again. Please give me your willingness. I'm giving you my willingness. Please help me to not do that again. And that is all that is required of us. That is all we can do. In conclusion, when we truly get grace, when we truly understand it, then we are free. Free to love and serve Jesus without the fear of not pleasing him. Galatians 5 verse 1 says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. If you've been listening to this this morning and you feel, I want to accept Jesus, I want to accept him by faith, then please come and talk to me afterwards. I'll be hovering around here. It'll be the best thing you ever do. Doesn't mean your life's going to get easier, but you'll have God's grace to help you through life. I've got a, a clip here that Dave's going to put on. It's the, they say the most amazing version of Amazing Grace ever. The idea is not to sing to it, but maybe we can just listen to it and ask God to speak to us about grace. Thank you.
so much uh, Willie for that word um, I know I was touched by that and reminded of the beauty of grace um, and the amazingness of it 
I'm going to keep that quote in my heart. What makes something amazing is how seemingly impossible it is. And sometimes when we look at that, that list of the things that we receive, we receive salvation and joy and freedom by grace, we can look at that and go, that's just impossible. That's seemingly impossible. How does that work? How does that work? Surely there's something I have to do. Surely there's something that involves my effort. It's just seemingly impossible. That's what makes it amazing. I want to encourage you this morning, uh, if you've felt uh, a touch from the Lord, you felt like, hey, I need to again understand grace in my life and, and, and what that means. As we uh, sing the next song, I just really encourage that you to just uh, maybe close your eyes and just be aware that he is here and he wants to bestow his grace upon you and in your life. So as we stand to sing, I'll get the, the musos up, uh, we're going to sing an older song that's a beautiful song that talks about being carried by grace. But I just want to pray right now for anyone here who just wants to receive that. And as Willie shared, if there's anyone here who wants to, for the first time, uh, accept Jesus into their life, that they might uh, live this freedom and joy, please come and see someone after the service. We'd love to pray for you and for you to receive that. So I just want to pray. Will you join me as we pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you that on the cross you said, it is finished. It is done. There is no more that needs to go on. There is no more that needs to happen in order for your salvation to be accomplished, for freedom to be purchased, for life to be had. And so as you said, it is finished and it is done. May we receive that. And I pray for anyone here who is who is struggling to... Uh, Earn, who's struggling to to uh, weigh up the good and bad in their life, that they somehow feel that they need to to do something to um, outweigh the bad. Lord, may your grace this morning, uh, may a revelation of who you are and what you've done, uh, come upon uh, this place and in the hearts of those who are open to receive that this morning. And we pray that in Jesus' name, Amen.